welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. As uh, Yelena just mentioned a second ago, we are so happy to see you here on this first day in March. It's always so good to be together as we worship, and it's always so good to come to the table together and to make space for each other's experiences in this space. So thanks for being here and participating in that. And if we haven't met in person, my name is Scott. I'm part of our staff team, and also I work with our volunteers that help make commons what it is week in and week out. And we are so fortunate here in our community. We really do have some of the best people in the city. And no, I'm not just saying that to get on your good side. I'm really honored to be part of this community because around this time of year, as we're getting ready for our annual general meeting, and we start taking stock of how blessed we are. We approve new board members who are going to serve our community. We start to make plans for the year ahead. Oh, and we do watch all the time the amazing care and advocacy that are being done by so many of you. As we do this, We stand back and we thank God for the opportunity to share life and this work with some amazing people. You make the goals and the vision of our community a reality and we we sense your support in so many ways and we're thankful for that. And as we think of these themes, we are also thinking of the season of Lent that we started this this last week. It was so nice to see some of you at our joint Ash Wednesday service in Kensington on, on Wednesday. And Lent is this season in Christian timekeeping that sets 40 days aside before Easter to prepare and to make room for introspection, and then ultimately to acknowledge that maybe we might be lost or that maybe we might need some course correction in our lives. And traditionally, the church has called people to engage in practices of prayer and fasting and almsgiving or charity to live into the rhythms of this season. And here at Commons, we try to build these patterns out into our themes that we come together in liturgy with. And you've seen that I've upped my scarf game as I'm wearing this stole as we will teach for the next few weeks. And we do these kinds of things and we make reference to these kinds of things as signals, as embodied markers for our shared journey together. And like the Gospels say, that Jesus seems to have made this intentional move to go towards Jerusalem. That Jesus made this deliberate choice to face the darkness of his world and his culture, knowing that it was going to cost him something, just like Jesus did, then we also set our attention toward Easter. And I know that so many of you are already committed to cultivating practices and awareness over the next 40 days, and that's one of the reasons why I love our community. But if you are new to what Lent is, maybe you weren't raised around a liturgical tradition, maybe you're just starting to explore a little bit of what faith looks like and this all sounds super new, maybe you're just a little unsure of what you could do to make this a meaningful season. I wanna mention a couple of tools that you might consider to help you in your Lenten practice. And yes, of course, there are all kinds of books. If you go on Amazon, you just type in Lent, you're gonna find all kinds of books and resources. Feel free to ask me about some of those if you need some recommends. But actually, earlier this week, we threw a video update on our Facebook page for this parish, which, quick plug, if you're not connected to that, just search Inglewood Commons Parish on Facebook, and we will find some of the Inglewood-specific, well, it's not just Inglewood, Inglewood Ramsey Community things that are happening, and then also some parish-specific resources, which is what this video was. And in this video, we outlined two Lenten tools that you might consider, each of them that are connected to one of our global partners. And I want to just go over these quickly today, because on one hand, you might pick up 
IJM's 40 Days for 40 Million Enslaved People. And we have some of these cards here at the Connection Center if you're interested in checking this out. As a community, we actually support the work of IJM in a community in Thailand. But using this card and this practice they've created for Lent can actually help you learn more about what they're doing around the world and also connect your generosity in this season to justice. Or... Maybe you're interested in our partner in Africa, this organization called Hands at Work. You may have heard us mention it. And they've created a guided 40-day prayer experience. And in this experience, it takes you into the experience of, of a vulnerable child and the work that Hands does to locally address in so many communities on the African continent the crisis that is sort of related to, or the crises related to global poverty. And actually, Hands at Work has created a guide that you can print or you can actually access through an app that they have. There's also a version that they've created for children. And you can access all this at their website, handsatwork.org, which will connect you to this organization that we support as commons more broadly, but then also it'll connect you to the community that we are sending a team to support this summer. And either way, these are just two examples along with a bunch of personal and local steps that you might take how you can join in the traditional Christian practices of creating more quiet in your life and more space and leaning into moments of solidarity as a result with that space you create, the places in our world that need someone to stand in and stand with the people who are there. And I trust that as you do that in your own way, you will find that you are journeying with Christ that your eyes and your heart are opening to the depth of our human dilemma and your place and your role in it, but then ultimately that you would come to see with new clarity the ways that this story we tell, this story of life and death and resurrection, how it makes all the difference. And with that said, we are going to jump into a new series today. We're going to jump into or dive into the story of Jonah. And of course, that pun most certainly is intended, but it is going to be awesome. Super excited. But before we get into it, I'm going to invite you into a moment of Lenten reflection and prayer. Join me now. God of all time, of the ordinary moments that we've gone through, of the silent prayers that we carry with us here today. You're the God, too, of all our Lenten longing. We ask that you would help us in this season to turn toward you and where maybe our hearts are out of sync with our bodies or our minds, maybe even with your gentle spirit. We pray that you would teach us the way to life that comes in all our humble returns. As we return to ourselves with kindness, as we return to each other in forgiveness, as we return to those around us in compassion, as we return to you as the source of a meaningful and a flourishing life. Where we make space, come and meet us, we ask in this season, in this moment, in our time together. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, a couple of years ago, I listened to a theologian talking about how we read Scripture. And he said, you know, sometimes we come to Scripture a lot like how we go to the zoo. He said, over time, we actually get familiar with the layout of the zoo. We know the map. We know the sites. We have our favorite spots here in Calgary. That's obviously the meerkats. And maybe as we age, we start to deconstruct the notion of the zoo, 
We critique the idea of animal captivity, and yet we still find ourselves wandering the zoo, spending hours trying to get, catch a glimpse of creatures that are almost always sleeping. But listen, what the scholar then said is that sometimes something crazy happens at the zoo. Like somebody falls into an enclosure, which is terrible, right? Or some creature escapes, and we realize that the whole philosophical construction of wild things made tame and benign and domesticated, it's all kind of an illusion. And this person's argument was that scripture has a way of subverting our expectations. How tales and stories we think we know, how sometimes in certain moments in our journey and in the light of what's happening around us in a particular time, they show us that they're far less controllable, familiar, and submissive to our dominance. The scriptures are, that is. These things are far less submissive to our dominance than we might have thought, which is an idea that I think might help us as we jump into this next series, because let's be honest, the story of Jonah might be one of the most familiar in the Bible, but I don't really get why. If you spent any time in Sunday school, I'm sure you heard the tale, and it probably got reduced to some version of obey God, or do the right things, or else. And of course, then you would put your hand on and say, or else what? Well, of course, you'll be swallowed by a fish, obviously. And if you've ever heard, or if you've never heard of Jonah, I'm sorry that I just gave you a massive spoiler. The point is that it's just a little bit weird how this story, which isn't actually that long in the first place, it gets reduced to a little moral instruction, and then that's it. And this is why, here at Commons, our commitment to be an intellectually honest community regularly leads us into moments where we try to get behind a story, or we try to deconstruct the ways that we've understood a story, and you will see with Jonah, we might actually fall into the story in new ways. And for some of us, this is actually a welcome feeling. We like this. Well, for some of us, it can be a bit disorienting. But what we hope is that together, what takes hold of us is this idea that truth might be wilder and freer than we imagined, where it's bigger than having answers that are carefully tucked behind bars for us to look at safely from a distance, and where we find that maybe truth is more dangerous than we thought, but how we're more alive with it on the loose all around us. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, I spoil any more of this story. For those of you who might not be familiar, here are the introductory lines. The text says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port and paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship started or threatened to break up. And so all the sailors were afraid, and they were crying out to their own gods, and they threw the cargo that they were carrying into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, and he laid down, and he had fallen into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe God will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And as we are starting out, I want to say a couple things about Jonah as a piece of ancient literature. See, 
Jonah comes to us in the scripture in this nebulous middle of our Bible. It is to the right of the Psalms and it is to the left of the story of Jesus, which can be this really intimidating place to go on your own, where you find, actually, most of the time, most of what you're going to find is the prophetic literature of the Hebrew Bible. And you have large books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those guys get called the major prophets, and largely because of how big their volumes are. And then you have a bunch of shorter books that are called things like Habakkuk and Hosea. Isaiah and Zephaniah, and this is where Jonah is found. And these guys get labeled the minor prophets. And we're going to say a little bit more about these writings in a bit, and we're going to talk about them a bit more as we work through this series. But for now, what you need to know is that the prophetic books are set in the middle of some really difficult history in Israel. See, after the rule of King David, who most of us know, he's famous for killing Goliath. David has a son named Solomon. They had a united kingdom. And the Bible records that that united Israelite nation broke apart into a northern kingdom after these two kings. That northern kingdom was called Israel, and then there was a southern kingdom called Judah. And I've got a handy map there for you to look at. And basically what happens is that both of these kingdoms hold on for a couple of hundred years after David's life until the kingdom of Israel was conquered and deported by the Assyrians in about 720 BCE. And then about 150 years later, the kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, it's conquered by the Babylonians about 587 BCE. And I get it, ancient history, blah, 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 but stay with me. The Hebrew Bible records so much of what happens in Israel during this time, and it's not pretty because the culture is unraveling. And corruption is rampant, and some of God's people have actually been pulled away into exile in other countries, and some of those people have tried to come back. And ultimately, what we see is that patterns of worship and faithfulness to God are starting to disappear. Enter the prophets. This bizarre choir of voices that spoke to these nations, and they were trying to get God's people to repent and to come back together. And in addition to this, sometimes they would ultimately just say, that's it. Time's up. Things are going to go sideways for you all. And what's interesting is that most of the prophetic books deliberately position themselves as being in this historical context. The prophets name places and they name names and they reflect on and speak to their real time world. And for the most, tar- most part, scholars see them and study them this way. This is also why theologians and interpreters tend to do their work by trying to understand the historical context as a way of understanding what might be relevant for us as people who are looking at these communities from afar but in our own time. And we do this with these books except for Jonah. And I'm going to give you a clear example of this from verse 1 in a second, but what you need to understand is that Jonah belongs in this prophetic literary group for reasons other than its ancient context. See, because most modern scholars are pretty skeptical about this book as a historical account, if it was even intended to be by its author. Robert Alter, this famous Hebrew historian, he notes that the fabulous elements of the story and their very extravagance have the look of literary invention. I mean, you're going to see it. You've got a prophet as the main character, but he's a bit of a toddler, it seems. And you've got a hungry fish with impeccable timing with its regurgitation. And you've got shipwrecks and storms and flashback scenes. We see a sprawling pagan city suddenly decide to turn over a new leaf. You have really quickly growing vines and you have pesky worms. And then ultimately, you've just got a belligerent prophet with a temper. It literally is a comedy at times. 
where Jonah is a kind of a bit character that is meant to get us laughing, which is why scholars use words like sensational and parabolic to describe this story. A story that would have opened ancient Jewish imaginations to what the prophetic looks like and how it comes to us. And maybe it can do this for you too. Because perhaps you don't spend a lot of time in your day thinking about where voices of wisdom might come to you from. I mean, there is so much information out there in our world, but we don't often wade into it with a sensitivity to where the Spirit's gentle invitations to change might come from, right? We don't often talk about calls to repentance coming from sensational or humorous, unexpected voices, do we? But maybe Jonah can open us up to this during Lent. And I want to give you an example from my own experience to illustrate how this might work. And it came in the form of a Netflix special called Nanette which is this extended monologue and art piece put together by Australian comedian Hannah Gatsby. Just quickly, not everybody's going to find Gatsby funny nor appropriate, so if you decide to check it out, you do so at your own discretion. I'm not telling you that you should or that you will like it, but here's the point. In this hour-long monologue, Gatsby tells a painful story of being assaulted as a queer woman and a marginalized person. And she rants against the offenses of cisgendered straight males and their violent tendencies in our culture. And all the while, she works in brilliant and sometimes understated humor. Like when she relates the awkwardness that she felt as a young lesbian woman when her own grandmother told her that Mr. Wright could be just around the corner. To which then she commented, and I have been approaching every corner with caution since. Which is a cute little joke, right? But here is what I'm getting at. As a straight white male, I couldn't help but listen to Gatsby and feel a little uncomfortable. Because her special came out as Me Too revelations were starting to fill our news feeds and at a time when I, as somebody who actually tries to honor and respect everybody who's around me, I, I was waking up to the lack of safety that so many people in my immediate world might feel. And this comedian helped me to start seeing the experiences of my LGBTQ siblings with new eyes as she brilliantly named her pain and her suffering and then comedically disarmed my resistance to its power. Which might strike you as completely unrelated to Jonah or as an exaggerated example of what might qualify as prophetic in our world. Or it might leave you still wondering if paying attention to the story for a few weeks is worth your time. But let me offer you a couple of examples that might land closer to home for you. I'm wondering if you are willing to, over the next few weeks, to open up to the prophetic critique of your own outlandish and cartoonish anger as you hear yourself yelling at someone you do not know who just happened to accidentally cut you off. Or when you find yourself raging at some ridiculous tweet or some news story that doesn't seem to have been reported on fairly. Could you open up to the humor of your children, if you have them, their lack of balance in the world or their frustration or their self-centeredness and the ways that this exposes your lack of control? How you really can't make them into being little angels? And what would it look like to let that pressure go? Or maybe is there some part for you in Lent that you can lean into humor in this story or in some novel or some show or something crazy that's going on in the world around where you start to realize the changes that it makes, 
the changes that it makes to how you see God and how you see yourself and all the ways that you're changing and growing and feeling the need to be different. Finding that as you do, your ears are more ready for good prophetic voices, whatever they look like. Voices that so often disarm our self-justifications and open us up and push us away from the resistance that we might feel to the correction that these voices bring. Voices that gently nudge us towards the better if we are ready for it. Which is how the book of Jonah starts with God speaking in a mysterious way or actually with a narrator telling us that God's speaking. We're gonna come back to this in a second because what's interesting is that the Hebrew grammatical structure of the first sentence here has this feature that we often miss in most of our English translations. See, Jonah begins with a verb in Hebrew. And it's a verb that's believed to indicate that you're reading the continuation of a story rather than the beginning of a new book. It's sort of the English equivalent of, and it happened that, as I've put the NSV up for you to convey, this translation uses the word now at the beginning of the sentence. It's trying to give you this sense of that there's been a story happening before this. And this grammatical construction is actually pretty common. We see it in other texts in the Hebrew Bible, texts like Judges and Joshua and Esther, for example, where the verb form actually just indicates that these stories were part of a broader piece of historical literature, which they were. But scholars don't think that Jonah is part of a historical narrative. There's no other fragments that come before this story, and it doesn't tie in with any other biblical accounts anywhere, which means that Jonah starts with a verb for dramatic effect. The tale begins, and we're invited to imagine that things have happened just before, and things will continue to happen after it's over, which is a little nerdy, admittedly, but interesting, even more so. Because unlike other major prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jonah is not a story written by a prophet about himself and his message. Jonah has a narrator whose identity we don't ever know. And they are telling us a story about Jonah. A story that launches with a verb meant to catch us off guard. Like, wait, what? What's going on? What happened just a second ago? And, and who is Jonah? And where other prophetic books set the historical scene clearly with things like the prophet's lineage and who happened to be the king at the time, this story just begins with action. With a guy whose father's name, Amittai, literally means my truth, leading some scholars to think that Jonah isn't meant to be seen as a real person, but kind of a stand-in, a representative, where you and I might see ourselves. And, and why? Well, doesn't your life feel a little like Jonah's at the beginning here sometimes? Don't we all have moments where we feel like we join our life as regularly scheduled programming? Where things have already happened that we couldn't control. Where we feel like we're acting out a part in a story that we did not choose where we feel as though the action of our life is carrying us in unanticipated and disorienting directions. And part of what this story invites us to see is how, like Jonah will discover, the unfolding of our lives will never happen in isolation. 
We are always joined in the story by a host of characters that make the journey rich. But then also, ultimately that no, not all unexpected beginnings are undesired ones. So the story gets going. God tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the great Assyrian empire, which was far to the north and to the east of Israel. And Jonah does not do this. What's interesting here is that there are plenty of examples in the Hebrew Bible of reluctant prophets, people like Moses who get instructions from God and they're kind of like, yeah, that sounds awkward, but ultimately they do this. Seems normal to kind of balk at God's instructions, but no prophet ducks out like Jonah. He, he runs and the vocabulary here is so bright and so stark. Jonah heads out in the opposite direction. And instead of going east, up into the hills of Syria and Iraq, the text tells us that he goes down, he goes west, down to the coast, and he buys a fare, to, gets on a ship that's headed out onto the open sea. He's trying to get away from God. And his destination, well, the text tells us that he's going to Tarshish. But we aren't exactly sure where this was. The name literally means something like place by the sea. Super vague, right? Beach, probably. So scholars have guessed that perhaps it was the Greek city of Tartessos in southwest Spain, or maybe it was Carthage, which was in North Africa, or it was some place on the island of Sardinia. There's even some references in the book of Isaiah to this being a spot that was just a distant coastland. Basically, Tarshish comes to represent something more than a historical place. And so does Nineveh. Tarshish becomes every place. Every place other than the one Jonah is supposed to be going to. Which is a brilliant way to see ourselves again as the story starts. Because I'm pretty sure that you have not received divine instructions to take a message to some foreign city. But I know that so many of you have found yourself somewhere between where you know you should be and all the places that you'd rather be. And maybe that's in a relationship where you know you aren't fully invested. And maybe you're not betraying your partner or your friend outright, but maybe you run from the work and commitment and intimacy by making yourself busy with work or with exercise or some other justifiable distraction. Maybe you've known for a long time that you need to make a change in your work or your vocation and you, you feel that way because you know you have some creative energy that's not being used. You, you could offer this to the world, but you put this off and you avoid the risk and the possible confrontation and you distract yourself with pet projects and initiatives that you know are not the best use of your skill or your time. Or maybe you're aware that there's some part of your heart that needs some work some part of your story that needs your attention and maybe with the help of a kind companion or a professional to help you make sense of it. But the thought of going in that direction, it terrifies you. So you set out into the world looking for a place to land, looking to call somewhere else other than your own soul home. And you know somehow though that you're not on course and inevitably, these kinds of choices, they bring us to moments like this one that Jonah's in here. The storm kicks up and the ship's coming apart and everybody's losing their minds and they're just chucking everything overboard. And Jonah, well, he's asleep. He's deep in the belly of that sinking ship 
in a kind of willful denial that he is where he is, that he is who he is. And the captain comes down and he says, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe God will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And right there, did you see it? Did you catch it? Did you catch the humor this prophetic story brings us? I mean, yes, it's a completely ridiculous image. There's a guy sleeping in his bunk while the room is filling with water and the ship is going down and he may have been wearing Beats headphones, but that's not probably going to work. But that's not the comic hinge here. No, it's in the phrase, maybe God will take notice of us so that we don't perish. Because any reader that's paying attention, anybody hearing this story should start chuckling to themselves right there. Maybe? Maybe God will take notice. I mean, after all, isn't this God the one who mysteriously is in this storm? Isn't this God the one who listened to the cries of a sprawling pagan city filled with millions of people? He heard all that. Isn't this God the one who comes to an obscure Jonah in an obscure place to give him meaning and a message to carry? Isn't this God the one acting in the story that came before this one, before this thing even started? Maybe God will take notice? Yeah, I'm pretty sure God already has. Which is maybe the comic relief you need today to face the fear and doubt you know you're looking at, even for just a moment. For the loneliness pressing in on you till you feel you can hardly breathe. And for that feeling that your choices have left you somewhere between where you know you should be and where you find yourself. And for that sense that you have no control over the direction that your life is taking, maybe you can hear Jonah's story today as your own. A story where God has certainly taken notice of you. God sees all the trials and trails that your life has taken on. And God has been working before you were even aware to carry you forward. And now God holds you in the storm that you face. Let's pray. Loving God of ancient story that is surreal and maybe hard to believe. And I'm struck even in this moment that there's probably some of us that feel that way about where we are. Maybe we find ourselves in a moment that feels like we didn't see it coming. We don't know where it's going. What in the world is happening? And so in this space, we open ourselves to your great kindness. And we trust that all our desires are known. That who we are and where we are, you see. And we ask that you would open us up to truth as being bigger and more wild than the stories we think we know. The ways that we come to scripture maybe with some really tight constraints and we ask that you would begin to open us up again to the great wildness of these stories. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear all of the prophetic voices that call out to us in this world. 
with the humor that they use to disarm us while also waking us up to new ways of being. And we pray too. And for all the times we feel that life has just happened to us, maybe where our situation is so much bigger than what we see and what we know, help us to trust that not all that is unexpected will destroy us. That you truly are a God that notices always for our heavy Lenten hearts in a world full of so much darkness and worry, we ask, Lord, have mercy and go with us as you promised to. We pray this in the name of Christ, our hope now and always. Amen.